In preparation for today's message, we shall be reading from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Again, that is John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So let's pray. Eternal God, um, we glorify you. Lord, that uh, we praise you for your goodness and mercy. Um, you are the God who is absolutely sovereign. Um, you are perfect in love. And... Uh, Thank you, Lord, for allowing us this morning to be one family, one church. And I pray, Lord, that may you use me and allow me to proclaim your word uh, with uh, sincerity and also precision. May you send the unction of the Spirit that I may communicate your word clearly and faithfully in accord uh, with your scriptures. So Lord, uh, have mercy upon me. Uh, use me as your instrument, as a mouthpiece this morning. And I pray that everyone will be um, illuminated by the Spirit of God and will learn principles and will have their faith solidified and strengthened by this message. We honor you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, brothers. Someone asked a well-known Bible teacher what he considered to be his greatest spiritual need. The teacher replied that he was conscious of very many lacks in his life. But he believed that his greatest lack was knowing more of the Word of God so that he might know God better. When a, the person responded that he found this very surprising since the Bible teacher quite obviously spent most of his time studying and meditating on the Bible. He was told in reply, I know enough of the Bible to know how much more there is to know. And I know that all knowledge of God depends upon such knowledge. Sometimes I feel like a man 
who has been running for a long distance, chest heaving, lungs pulling for more oxygen. So this reply was perceptive, of course, for it was an acknowledgement of one of the underlying principles of evangelical Christianity. It is the principle that no one ever understands spiritual truths apart from the Word of God, and that, as a result, no one can come to know God by any other means. I believe that we can state categorically that there is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus Christ. And there is no knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from a knowledge of His Word, the Bible, the Scriptures. So as we progress with our exposition this morning, we will distinguish two camps or two kinds of people. The first camp, uh, those who disregard the, the teaching of the Bible, and the second camp, those who connect the words of our Lord Jesus to the teachings of the Bible. So this uh, important truth will be illustrated for us in the story to which we now come in our first by verse study. So the first part is the Passover. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was almost Passover, and many pilgrims would be arriving in Jerusalem. They would need some animals to sacrifice. The Passover was the greatest celebration of the Jewish calendar. It was observed in late March or early April. During these feasts, the Jewish people remembered their bondage in Egypt and the redemption under Moses. They commemorated the night when the angel of death or the destroyer passed through the entire land of Egypt and killed the firstborn male of each household both men and beasts. The only way to escape the horror of judgment was the sacrifice of a young lamb with no blemishes. The blood of the lamb was smeared on the lintel and the doorpost. Seeing the blood, the angel of death was, would pass over the Jewish household. As a faithful Jew, our Lord Jesus took part in these remembrance of God's mighty redemption of His ancient people. Looking back through history, we might think that Jesus avoided the Jewish customs and rituals and created a new so-called religion. But this, this was not the case. The Lord Himself faithfully observed the Jewish law, he only objected to the religious leadership because they had added to the Torah 
or the law of Moses and developed tradition or rigid laws that did not reflect the whole counsel of God. In contrast to their hypocrisy, Jesus kept the law and the prophets perfectly. So in verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So it is interesting to note that John describes our Lord Jesus purging or cleansing of the temple as beginning of his ministry. The synoptic gospels or the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record similar event at the end of Jesus' ministry, providing the momentum for his arrest and his execution. Some scholars say that this reveals that John the Beloved was less concerned about chronology than historical content. Others maintain that there were two such events. The first recorded in John and the second recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Whichever may be true, our Lord's anger overwhelmed the vendors profiting from a lucrative temple-back commercial trade. As the Lord Jesus entered the temple, he would have found a busy enterprise. The commerce was transacted in the outer court of the Gentiles, the outermost perimeter of the temple complex, not the inner holy place or the court of women. In the temple worship, it was necessary to provide some animal to the priest as a sacrifice according to Old Testament law. To facilitate these requirements, there were vendors or merchants who provided the required animal for purchase within the complex. These relieved many Jewish pilgrims who traveled long distances to celebrate the feast day. Jesus and his disciples, for instance, had just traveled from Capernaum to Jerusalem, a journey of 70 miles and, 70, and several days. So the temple was definitely or basically the center of Jewish worship and also Jewish thought and discussion. It was supposed to symbolize community, worship, culture, and also interaction. But the vendors occupied spaces that they should not have. The money changers were there to provide a service also. And uh, all Jews had, and Jews had to pay a temple tax for the maintenance of the temple system. These tax had to be paid in the coin of the temple. Therefore, people who were subject to the control of Rome did not always have the proper coinage with them. To the Jewish mind, the Roman coin with the image of Caesar blasphemed their worship. Since the Lord God 
had commanded his people to refrain from the worship of any graven images in the Ten Commandments. The money changer exchanged the forbidden Roman coinage with the approved temple coinage. Corruption tainted the system. However, when the high fees were charged for this service, and even the priest were complicit. So the next part is the purging in regard to the Father's temple because of the zeal of the Lord for the Father's house. Scripture says in verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Our Lord Jesus was enraged by the sacrilege of this busy and corrupt marketplace. He was angry, furious at the hypocrisy of such materialistic worship. He made a whip out of ropes and drive out the animals and completely routed the dishonest merchants and also overturned their tables. Why would so many flee from the just anger of one man? Certainly, they did not fear the minor pain that could be inflicted from the whip of cords. Surely, the great number of vendors or merchants could easily subdue one person. But they did not do so, and they were unable to do so. We must conclude that it was the fury of a righteous God lightened on Jesus' countenance. They were wrong. They knew that they were wrong. The general chaos that followed in the wake of Jesus' anger added to the confusion. Many were scattered, were dispersed everywhere. Tables were turned upside down. In verse 16, Scripture says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So our Lord Jesus did not upset the cages of the pigeons. These would have trapped the hapless birds and caused them injury. Rather, instructed the merchants to remove the doves. Then he explained the reason for his fury. These vendors had changed the purpose for which the temple was built from the worship of God to a means of making money, usually at the expense of the poor. Like the tent of meeting that traveled with the Hebrew people in the wilderness, these temple or these buildings symbolize God's presence with His people. It was holy ground and these people had desecrated it. The Lord just, Jesus just witnessed what He had seen and what is written in the days of prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11, when the scripture says, the house that is called by my name has be become a gathering place for thieves. 
I've seen what you are doing, declares the Lord. Also, don't miss the fact that our Lord Jesus took this very personally. He used the possessive phrase, my father's house. This is further confirmation that Jesus was who John had said he was. In the words of the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, Jesus was more than just a man. He was the flesh and blood reality of the Creator Himself, the very essence of the eternal God. Confirm that understanding of He who really was. So in verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. In fact, the disciples remembered an Old Testament scripture that described just such an event that would unveil the Messiah. The disciples made a connection between his actions to the scriptures. These were the words of a messianic psalm. Let me quote. Indeed, devotion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have on me. You have on me. That's in Psalm 69, verse 9. John did not quote the entire passage or the entire verse. Only the first phrase is used, indicating Jesus' powerful passion for the house of God. This kind of zeal, zeal or passion for the house of God is consuming in its intensity. And as the disciples observed the actions of our Lord Jesus, they saw the Holy One of Israel. And He is consumed by the very love for the house of God. The temple back then was the center of worship and discussion for the people, the ancient people of God. Many visit the temple for the Passover. Of course, there was nothing wrong with selling sacrifices. However, it could have been done at a distance. Nevertheless, in spite of the text and its uh, fulfillment, those who were threatened by the action of our Lord were not thinking in accord with scriptures and consequently did not see the hand of God in Christ's action. They already had one very dramatic sign and there was also a variety of unspecified miracles to be considered in John, as mentioned in John chapter 2 verse 23, but they rejected this, these things and instead demanded something else. So the last part is in predicting uh, in regard to his fleshly temple. So Jesus, this is the famous uh, three days uh, speech of our Lord. So in verse 18, so the, jo the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So I call this sign, sign demanded. 
Okay? So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Um, I call this sign demanded. Obviously, these for forceful removal of the merchants or the vendors in the court of the Gentiles did not go unnoticed. The Jews does not mean the Jewish people as a whole, but refers to those in authority or rulers over the temple. They must have come running when they heard all of the commotion. It must have sounded like a stampede as men and animals fled from the wrath of these men. Jesus could not upset the whole temple commercial system without being interrogated by those in authority. As they surveyed the scene, the absence of both men and animals, tables overturned, money scattered everywhere, they knew who was the source of the problem. So my sanctified imagination dictates that they look at Jesus with a mixture of anger and awe. Who is this man? Why do we fear him? By what authority does he do this? Who does he think he is? Perhaps while all these thoughts rush through their heads, they ask a less confrontational question. Jesus was certainly someone to be reckoned with. So they asked for a sign or a miracle, some demonstration that would prove that he had authority to do what he had just done. So in verse 19, our Lord answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise up. So I, call, I will call this the sign described. So the Lord presented them with a strange riddle. The answer proved nothing. It only convinced the Jewish authorities that Jesus had lost his mind. Anyone could see the great glory of Herod's temple and also marvel at the workmanship. There was no way anyone could build such a structure in three days. Two words are translated as a temple. Both are used here. Earlier, Jesus had entered the temple in Greek, Heron. Uh, Heron. These words speak specifically about the temple present, including all of the buildings that comprise the temple complex. The word also is used to indicate the structures of the temple. Uh, and also, in this verse, Jesus used a different word in Greek, which is nawas. While the word can also refer to the temple of Jerusalem, there is a more figurative usage. This is the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians when he tells Christians that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. John also uses this word when he speaks of the temple in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. Uh, let me read that verse. I did not see any temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Revelation 21, 22. So, in fact, uh, in all appearances, 
it seems to me that there is a misunderstanding between Jesus and the Jews. While our Lord appeared to make a completely irrational statement, He had another thought in mind. So Scripture says in verse 20, The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So I call this the sign distorted. According to a first century Jewish historian, Josephus, the construction of this temple began in the 18th year of the reign of Herod, about uh, 19 before Christ. So the construction was not completed until the reign of Herod Agrippa around 63 AD. Therefore, the temple was still under construction during Jesus' time, but had already gained the admiration of many as they viewed the glorious structure of this temple. In this verse, the Jews countered with the same word for temple as Jesus had used in the previous verse, but more with a material meaning. Interestingly, this temple was completely destroyed only seven years following its completion in 70 AD. The Roman general Titus from the city of Jerusalem said that it has never been rebuilt. And this cataclysmic event was predicted by our Lord shortly before his crucifixion if you're going to read uh, the Gospel of Mark. In, in the next verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So I call this the sign discerned. So John now provides the true interpretation of the Lord Jesus' remarkable statement. Jesus was not speaking about the physical structure of the temple of Jerusalem, but about his body prophesying the death and the rest of his death and resurrection just three days later. The Jews, of course, did not understand this. In fact, they wanted to see some evidence immediately that would confirm Jesus' authority to upset the entire temple. Not just the temple, but also the commercial system. So Jesus gave nothing to satisfy their demands. So in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Hallelujah. So this, the sign has been discerned. So I call this the sign discerned. The Jews who heard him reacting by questioning the validity of his statement. But Jesus spoke about his resurrection, the ultimate sign that validated everything. John and the disciples understood after the resurrection later on. So uh, if we can remember, or if we move to the following chapters of the Gospel of John, uh, during the great discourses of Jesus' final week, week, 
he told his closest disciples in, uh, uh, in, uh, that, that these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you the things and bring, you, bring to your remembrance all that I have, to, I have said to you. At, at the time of this event, the disciples were as confused as the Jewish leaders. But after his resurrection, true to his word, God the Holy Spirit, which is uh, the comforter that Jesus promised, the other comforter, the paraclete, did indeed remind his disciples of the things he had said. More importantly, the Spirit of the living God enlightened them to accurately and properly interpret the meaning and to understand and be recipient of Jesus' words. So as we can see here, most of the story revolves around the Jews who did not want to hear and who did not approach the things of God scripturally. But they are not the only ones in the story. There, there are also the disciples of our Lord Jesus. Uh, they are just a simple group, mostly fishermen, but they are educated because uh, even a simple fisherman uh, in Jewish times are educated. They might not have uh, a huge reputation in the eyes of the world. They had no fame in Jerusalem, but they knew their scriptures. And they had begun to interpret the things that were happening right before their eyes in the light of the word of God. So in, in the verses 17 and 22, they tell us that one of the acts of Christ they understood then as a result of knowing the scripture in the Old Testament and that the another act of our Lord they also understood later as knowing through the scripture and it was, it was all through the scripture. So we encounter Jesus through his word. Biblical, evangelical Christianity is a word-centered faith. So we remember that if, you, if we want to strengthen, to have a deeper walk with the Lord, we have to meditate on the word of God. So application, we have to remember the Passover. Okay, the Passover was a shadow of things to come. It reflected the coming judgment and God's mercy through Christ. But instead of the blood of a lamb today, we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of our Lord Jesus represents his sacrifice. So in the Passover rite, painting the doorway with blood forms an emblematic barrier which prevents the angel of death or the destroyer from transgressing the premises and executing the firstborn male within. This is a bit of divine theater, an object lesson for the Israelites. So the blood has a protective function. 
It shields the firstborn male from divine judgment. So these basic principles carry over to our ordinance or our ritual of the Lord's Supper. So the, the Passover rite for the Israelites, the ancient people of God, it's carry over to our ordinance of uh, the breaking of the bread or the Last Supper as Jesus uh, immortalized with his disciples. Uh, so the, the rite depicts the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's already clear from its background in the Passover, but it's reinforced by allusions to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The elements are somewhat different. There's an emphasis on bread and wine rather than the lamb. That's because Jesus will take the place of the lamb. No doubt the original Passover meal involved wine to wash down the solid food. But that ritual already had literal blood, the shed blood of the lamb. So there was no need for another element, the wine, to symbolize blood in contrast to the Lord's Supper. So on analogy with the Passover, this is not about consuming blood. This is about internalizing the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood, rather, the blood retains its protective significance. The wine represents the shed blood of Christ, anticipating the crucifixion just hours away during that time. The bread represents the body of Christ, soon to suffer violent death, a sacrificial victim. The blood of Christ shields the Christian from divine judgment, in this case, eternal judgment or the what we call eschatological judgment or the judgment on the end time damnation rather than physical death the plague of the firstborn uh, in exodus so that is the significance of the passover and we have to remember that as new testament new covenant believers in christ number two we have to worship through Christ. So places of worship were essential in Jewish culture and tradition. However, since the Messiah came, the who became more important than the specific location, the where. Therefore, we worship the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So best analogy would be a sketch of a painting. So... Um, the sketch of a painting is also significant, but it's not as significant as the painting. So what's the point of the tabernacle or animal sacrifices? Do they have any independent significance? Or does their value lie in what the symbol points to? There's nothing intrinsically or inherently redemptive about animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. These really cannot atone for sin as tokens of redemption. They point to the need for a redeemer, for final redemption. In Old Testament history, God sends prophets, God raises up kings, God established a priesthood. All these offices mediate God, but you don't encounter God himself. It's just a procession of human representatives 
speaking and acting on God's behalf and in His place. It's so repetitious, monotonous, and it never culminates in God Himself or direct religious experience. It's just buffered and filtered through intermediaries or through these mediators. But with Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as John testified, beautifully testified. And the incarnation, because of the incarnation, Jesus pitched a tent among us. He tabernacled with us. He became one of us. I remember the song, One of Us by Joan Osbert. Any one of you familiar with that song? Those were Generation X and Generation Y. It became a Grammy Award-winning song. And the singer in that song is asking, what if God is one of us? So if, if, he was, if she only dares, or if someone probably give her the Bible, uh, she will encounter the true God who became one of us. So with Jesus... There is a direct encounter between God and man. Yahweh comes to us in person, even more so in Theophanies, to actually meet the Lord face to face. Of course, we're human, so God uses a human vehicle. We can relate to more naturally than manifestation of angels or fire in the Old Testament. We're not angels, and of course, fire is inanimate. So there is somewhat like a paradox or an antimony to divine revelation. Humans have the greatest affinity for fellow humans. Nothing is more like us or as much like as another human being. So the closest approach God can make to us is becoming one of us by coming to us as a human being. So remember this when we worship as well, that the person of Jesus Christ is crucial in our worship. That's why there is a word in theology called Christocentric worship. And we need to remember also Jesus' seal for the house of God and for the worship of God. And again and again, throughout this Gospel of John, we will see that worship is not something we are allowed to do as we please. Those who do so should fear that Christ will come with a whip of cords and drive them from his sanctuary. Lastly, we have to proclaim the resurrection. And let me be the first person to greet you. Happy Easter. Okay? So let's proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... The Jews asked for a sign, and Christ gave them one, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Not all of them understood, but some did after his resurrection. We believe in the witness, and we pass forward this message. So the resurrection must be much more than God's approval or a vindication or an evidential proof of Jesus' claim. The resurrection is central to the redemptive history. The resurrection is Jesus' victory over death 
establishing him in his humanity as Lord of heaven and earth. And when he was raised, we too were raised to newness of life, a newness of life that will ensure our own physical resurrection as well on the last day. That's why we celebrate Easter more than Good Friday. Okay? Remember that. The significance of Easter. That our Redeemer lives. Uh, that's why sometimes born-again Christians are being taunted to by non-believers as alive, alive people. Because we truly believe that Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. And let me give you a couple of... Um, there are uh, overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But uh, the ultimate evidence, as I mentioned, is the resurrection narrative is inscripturated in the Word of God because the Word of God is our ultimate evidence. But uh, let me cite a few lines of uh, proof of the resurrection in the Gospel of John. So John's gospel contains many extra, uh, extraneous or intricate details that are consistent with a first-hand observer who's remembering the past, indeed seeing the past in his recollection. For example, the time of day, we studied about the 10th hour, about the 6th hour, 6 stone water pots, each holding 20 or 30 gallons during the miracle, water to wine. So remember, that precision of details, um, it, it means that the Gospel of John is based on accurate memory. Not only that, um, this is uh, the first great New Testament scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, is very helpful because he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John. He was a colleague of D.A. Carson. And... Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, there was an interest, interesting feature is his editorial comment or aside. John will quote a statement of Jesus or narrate an event in the life of Christ, then add an explanatory comment to forestall the reader's misunderstanding. That, however, is a very clumsy device if the Gospel is pious fiction. In that event, why first make a confusing statement that you must then clarify if you're making this, if you're just making this up or if you're just making stuff up? Uh, why not build your interpretation directly into the narration rather than interrupt the story with these distracting interjections? So if you're reading right now the gospel narratives of John, you will realize that he will editorialize in one form or the other to correct the understanding of the reader of his gospel. He usually do that. Remember in John 20, 28, when Thomas called Jesus, my Lord and my God, he didn't editorialize. He didn't say, oh, maybe it's just Thomas was full of emotion. He accidentally called Jesus God. He never editorialized. So it means that Jesus is truly God. Amen? So that's, that's just one proof uh, 
of uh, the reality of the resurrection as taught in the Gospel of John. And also, uh, let me give you one more. Um, the Gospels are strikingly reserved in the accounts of the resurrection. None of them directly describes the resurrection itself. None of them depicts Jesus returning to life in a tomb and exiting the tomb. Rather, all of them narrate the aftermath of the resurrection. People discovering the empty tomb and Jesus reappearing to people. That's consistent with eyewitness reportage. Since there were no eyewitnesses to the resurrection itself, no one besides Jesus was in the tomb. If, however, the Gospel of John and the other Gospels are pious fiction, we'd expect them to describe this central event in spectacular detail, like in pagan literature. But there's no such thing in the Gospel. There's no embellishment in the Gospel because it's eyewitness reportage. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we must not join the world in leaving Christ on the cross. Instead, we must emphasize the rest of the story that His resurrection breathes life into and entombs souls. He removes hearts wallowing in sins, deception, and replaces them with hearts thirsting for truth and goodness. Christ alone gives hope to the hopeless and a future to the forsaken. The miraculous signs complete work, his life, death, resurrection, and return. Let's read uh, the point of Dr. Ed, a uh, summary of uh, the gospel, the message this morning. He drove them out of the temple. Vendors forgot the symbol. The temple should reflect worship. Priests should have practiced stewardship. A cord to whip the animals, a matter of self-denial. For God's honor, we must transform, yet a stick to biblical norms. Money tables were overturned. Jewish people then should have learned. The house of God should be kept clean. The writer shared what he had seen. Zeal for his house made evident Perhaps his actions did offend. The people then asked for a sign. He revealed the plan and design. Destroy this temple, then just wait. Christ will rebuild it in three days. The body, but not the building. A truth that we keep proclaiming. He suffered and died for our sins. And they proclaimed that this ever since. From death he rose, therefore repent, believe in the Son whom God sent. This is the entitled Temple Story. Let us pray. Eternal God, we honor you, Lord. Indeed, Lord, that the Gospel of John is so accelerating. And, uh, and thank you, Lord, for the witness of John for the reality and the excellency and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is victorious. Thank you, Lord, for this grace. We are undeserving of this mercy and grace, and we deserve the judgment, O Lord.
We are sinners in word, thought, and in deed. We are rebels. And yet, Lord, by your provision, by your love, by your grace, and by your mercy, you send your only begotten Son, the Son of God incarnate, God the Son, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Paschal Lamb, who died to pay the penalty of our sins, and who resurrected on the third day to destroy the power of sin in our lives. Help us, Lord, to depend on Christ daily, on His gospel daily. Every second of our lives, look to Christ alone. Every second of our lives for our salvation. And by Your Spirit, Lord, transform us to be better sons and daughters of Christ. And help us, Lord, to grow in our faith and our love for you and our neighbors. Solidify our faith. Give us the discipline to study your word and to persevere as well. Help us to be godly, Lord, to be Christ-like by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, for each of the brothers and sisters here that their soul is nourished after our message this morning. And I pray also, Lord, for those who have backslidden or those who have no personal relationship or encounter with Jesus Christ in His Word. I pray, Lord, that may the Spirit prompt them to study and meditate on Your Word, that they will see the glory and beauty and the sweetness and the excellency of Jesus Christ in Scriptures. We give You back all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.